Yeah, I went with Michael Bourne and we went just listening to this beautiful song, Im to Freedom. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to The Checkout. It's a podcast, besides being a radio show, and all of our shows are archived on our homepage at WBGO.org, produced at WBGO Studios. I'm Simon Rentner. On today's show, it's part two, or should I say part deux, in celebrating one of our own here at WBGO, Michael Bourne, as we look back and he's entering retirement. We did a quick recap of his career on our last episode with the legendary Booker T. Jones at Robert Randolph, an incredible studio session you definitely need to hear if you missed it. But on this show, we're going to explore the other side of Michael Bourne, where he's beloved in the jazz mecca on the 49th parallel, as he'd always like to say to me, Montreal. Montreal, that's basically his second home as he spent 27 years there covering the Montreal International Jazz Festival. And so we're going to get a chance to speak to him about that experience over all those years and some of the highlights, a whole lot of jazz history. All the leaves are brown And the sky is gray Let's rewind back to 2014 when Michael Bourne sat down with one of his heroes at the festival, Canada's own jazz superstar, Diana Krall. We're bringing you this interview from our vaults because, well, (laughs) Michael Bourne was a huge fan of Diana Krall and championed her from the very beginning of her career. And she's quite aware of it. In fact, mentioning it in front of our live audience insane that Michael Bourne is one of the most important men in her career. For a little context, this was when Crawl was at the apex of her popularity in between recording Glad Ragdoll in 2012 and on the heels of releasing her most ambitious studio recording to date called Wallflower with her fellow Canadian record executive pianist Ranger David Foster at the helm. So here we go, the first part of this podcast, Michael Bourne with Diana Krall in front of a live audience at the Montreal Jazz Festival 2014 in the press room. Do you see your life flash before you, your career flash before you when you come to Montreal? Yeah, I'm not really one to um, do that, but I guess when Andre just showed me through the museum and you see uh, Miles Davis in his jacket and Ella Fitzgerald with Dave Brubeck and hear the story about how Dave Brubeck got the last picture uh, uh, taken by um, Herman Leonard mm-hmm. and um, then you see my little jacket there <laughs> it's it's pretty um, overwhelming and, I, and especially because I'm Canadian and uh, my career really started here Was that amazing so, moment? You played at the Maison Neuve, and I think that was the first big hall you played. Mm-hmm. And that evening, then a couple of hours later, Tony Bennett played at the Wilfred Pelletier, 
And in the middle of his concert, he called you out, yeah. sat you at the piano, and stood there and held the microphone. Yeah. Did you feel anointed on that evening? I'm um, curious what you felt. That I felt night. like, I think there was a. David Letterman made fun of me because I was. He asked me a similar question. I I said I just said, "Oh my God, it's Tony Bennett," and he goes, "Okay, oh my God, it's Tony Bennett." And I have a lot of those situations because I remember when I first met Oscar Peterson here too. Like all, all the very significant people that I met in in my my musical and personal life. You know, Oscar Peterson was someone that I put in my annual when I was 16 that I dreamt of meeting someday or. You know, you have to put in your annual, your high school yearbook. And to meet him with Kelly and Celine when she was just, I think Celine was only two, three years old then, I just remember standing there and going, like, just, and I'll never forget that. I'll never forget all these moments. So um, I think that this is a much more emotional place for me to play in every way and where I feel rooted in jazz and the appreciation for jazz and that this festival it's just the most significant festival for me in in the world. You were always so adamant that you never wanted to leave the piano. You never wanted to leave the piano behind, yeah. certainly. Mm-hmm. And 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 do you feel like you've been pulled away from the piano more and more? Your new record is Never. very orchestral and much less piano yeah. than I'm used to. I'll have to have some. I'll have to be on Dancing with the Stars to try to like. I don't. I I don't know. I I thankfully um, have not figured that out yet. But I've not never been away from the piano. Even when I record, I'm still sitting at the piano when I'm recording. I'm not in a vocal booth. So so you've heard the new record. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's a real challenge to have the courage to step away from the piano and not do a jazz record and have someone like David Foster. Well, first he said, you should play the piano. And after I heard him, I was like, no, thanks. You got it. It's a whole other style. It's a different style of music. It would be like me playing with a classical musician, a classical pianist. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a jazz record. It's what it is. Wallflower, wallflower, won't you dance with me? The night will soon be gone. Cinema is so important to me, and it has such a strong effect on my music that now it's not that I need it, it's I want it. I want to be able to, for people to see Groucho Marx and how you can put music to it. I love silent film. Every Sunday night with my kids, we watch Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. And it's a Sunday night ritual now where we, we watch Chaplin and uh, my kids love it. And I just, I've always loved being, interpreting film to music, to music. So this gives me a chance where I can do that. Some people said, oh, why do you need the films? Because I like it. You know, next thing I'll be having Bernard Herman pieces. <laughs> you know, I'll have some Hitchcock in there. It's something you can sort of change up. And I stayed up all night. I had knee surgery, and would look at clips and finding clips of um, George Raft. You know, and Carol Lombard dancing to. It's just another emotion and another texture. The angels are crying. They are shedding. That's why the rain falls from 
people or remind people who are maybe people who never knew who Cliff Edwards was and who Georgie Jessel was. You were playing all this music. You played some songs I never heard of. Which yeah, was oh sure. An amazing. Like, Let it rain is a yeah, song I that mean, everybody seems to love, but there's almost like an evangelical quality to it. Like here's the yeah. music you should know about. Yeah, I'm not a mentor, and I'm not really. A, I'm I'm not a role model, but I mean it's not my job to be to educate. It's to is to make people feel good and make people laugh. And just, just make people, just, that's, that's how, I'm not a very cerebral uh, musician or artist, and I just, I just kind of think I found a kind of sweet spot for myself, where I don't feel like I'm not in a, in a place that I'm comfortable. I, I really enjoy playing stride piano, and if I make a mistake, I just, whatever. It, I, should, I just want people to feel like they're in my world, that they're closer to me, not that I'm pushing them back or I'm a diva that I'm doing this and you don't really understand me. I want everybody to feel like, hey, this is what I do at home. If if you weren't buying tickets and I was pouring you wine. But I know we'll be happy again. Often at holiday time, at Christmas time, but I have a stack of ukulele songbooks because they're easy for people to see the melody. And I just have like like the hymnals at church. I just throw them out, and everybody picks a song, and we all sing it. And it's just it's not done very much, but I, I kind of pour a lot of wine, and then people relax, and before you know it, we're singing uh, "Oh My Darling Clementine." And it doesn't matter, you know. It's just that feeling that you're all together. Though you're past your baby days. Still, you've got those baby wings. Will you be playing the ukulele for 100,000 people in no, the street? No, I gave that up. <laughs> no, I mean, it would be fun. I and throwing in the ukulele. No, I, I've got my husband around. He'll play a little. I, I, uh, no, I play the ukulele at home. And uh, I save it for the bath. So I fill my bathtub up with gin. And then I play my ukulele and... I don't sound very good, but the lower the bathwater gets, the better I sound. <laughs> and feel. So I highly recommend you take your ukulele, fill your bathtub full of gin, play your heart out, make sure you have a babysitter around so you don't sort of sink into the gin. But, uh, you know, you've got, a, you've got a dirty martini right there. Don't need any olives or nothing. What have we got lips for? What have we got arms for? Well, that was cool. Didn't you think? Michael Bourne speaking with Diana Krall at the Montreal Jazz Festival in 2014. Build me a grave, crush me some ice, skin me a beach, save the fuzz for my pillow, start me a smoke. Talk to me nice You gotta wind me And dine me Don't try to fool me Be jewel me Either amuse me Or lose me I'm getting hungry Feel me a grape This is probably not the peel me a grape you're used to hearing by Diana Krall herself, but this version is performed by Sonia Johnson, Lorraine Demaray, and her trio, 
on our 40th anniversary celebration, WBGO Montreal Jazz Festival, and of course, Michael Bourne's last year attending in 2019. A quick side note, it was also the last year its founders were steering the ship, Andre Minar and Alain Simar. And we're going to hear both of them on stage in between my conversation with Michael Bourne. Stories and music from the history of the Montreal Jazz Festival. So, Michael, we're here at the 40th anniversary of the... How do you say it? Festival International de Jazz de Montreal. I love the big word jazz. And so, how many years have you been coming? Twenty. This is 27. It should have been 28. I had a heart attack one year and they didn't come or I couldn't come. I was really angry. Not that I had a heart attack. I figured I earned a heart attack with all the cheeseburgers, but but uh, I was really angry that I missed Montreal that one year. So they sent me a press pass anyway, and that year it was blood red. <laughs> I love it. I have it. I sometimes still bring it and wear it. I've been way beyond being a journalist showing up or a broadcaster showing up. I've been uniquely in between the festival and and the media and all of that. I've been an insider and able to see from the outside at the same time. And it's always been extraordinary because it's been an intimate relationship with all these people. I mean, they call me Uncle Michelle. I mean, Uncle Michael. They've been doing it for 40 years and doing it wonderfully, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just a wonderful place. And all of this is is amazing. If you stop and look back at what used to be, it was a main artery, Jean Mans. Now there's bands and there's children dancing in fountains. And they put a big stage there and they'll have, I've been here where there are like 100,000 people. Well, Alain Simard and André Menard started the festival 40 years ago, and, and 40 years ago it was a smaller thing, and it was over in the Latin Quarter, not this far away, and, and people complained about the noise. And now it's the biggest jazz festival in the world, according to Guinness. André's, André's fantasy always was that the festival became big enough that you could see it from space, like the Grand Great Wall of China, you know. <laughs> But basically what they've done is they've just stuffed that much more into Place des Arts. They built this beautiful, huge symphonic hall. And they put it where the little kids used to have their faces painted like cats. Valley High may call you any night. This festival shows that at the heart of everything is jazz, but it's, it's way beyond that. I mean, I, I learned how to look at life and listen to music in Montreal at this festival by listening. And, and people were always complaining, there's not enough jazz at the festival. I said, you have to listen. And you hear how at this festival, you can hear jazz evolving. Every generation of jazz has complained about the generation before. Oh, trad people didn't want to hear bebop. Bebop people and you know, swing people and this and then the Arnett Coleman and oh, no, 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 no. And Miles Davis and oh, it's electronic and blah, no, 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 no. And the music keeps evolving. 
and that happens here too. So it's here that I heard a group called Plaster one night and it absolutely changed the way I think about music because all of a sudden I heard it. I heard the connection between this group that was using samples and electronics and all that. And I, I heard the connection back to Count Basie in the 30s in Kansas City. They're throwing riffs at each other and patting your foot. I mean, there, it's all there. Dave Brubeck, who you know is so dear to me, and, and he was the one jazz great who was invited every year, a standing invitation every year. And he's one of the many musicians who talked about, you know, I'd hang out with him. And, and, and he said he loved coming to play here. And he said, uh, this audience is really great. They, they know the music, so you have to be really good when you come and play here. Once upon a time. Tony Bennett loved singing here because the audience was just so great and the acoustics of the Wilfred Pelletier he loved, and, and the way they treat artists. He always talked about how the festival treats artists wonderfully. Do you tell some of the horror stories too? I don't know. Some <laughs> of the horror stories about certain artists who will remain nameless at the moment, uh, they're hilarious stories in retrospect. But when they were happening, you wanted to kill them. You know, it's just, it's just amazing. All right, so now it's time to hear a few of those horror stories, shall we? Let's go on stage at this 40th anniversary event, WBGO, the Montreal Jazz Festival, along with two of its founders, Andre Minard and Alain Simar. There's a lot of great artists who are adults as great artists, but they're babies as people, and you have to deal with them. And I've always said to you, I admired you because there's a certain artist, we won't mention their names necessarily, but they're great artists, but you have to put up with so much crap to have them come and play for you. And you would have them come and they're wonderful, but. There were some difficult moments, but I don't, I cannot think back as, you know, people that had scandalous behavior or impossible requests to, to meet, you know. Obviously, the most demanding man in the business at some point was Charlie Hayden. You know? Ah, I wonder and why he was next on my list of things to t- and people to talk about. <laughs> so we can't wait to talk about Charlie, but uh, once, you know, he had booked himself in Copenhagen the day after Montreal, and he was afraid that he would not make it on time to the airport. So he asked me, man, the show that's supposed to start at 8, uh, can it start at 7 instead? I said, no, we sold the tickets, but there was no internet at the time to tell everybody that. Uh, I said, no. We have a good driver who's going to take you. He knows secret tunnels to get to the airport, but there's no way that... And he said, I feel so insecure about this because I cannot miss my gig in Copenhagen tomorrow. So he said, could you find me an helicopter? So that's an helicopter of all the crazy demands you ever met. This one is, is gigantic, but you know what? I'll give it a try. And I called the people at Bell Helicopter in Mirabel and explained to them that I had this musician. Was, and there's a heliport downtown Montreal for the prime minister that could fly him. So to the Mirabelle Airport that was next to Bellicopter. So the guy says, I have to call you back. And then he called me back and said, the only helicopter that can fly at night is not in Montreal. It's at the airman of the province who cannot bring it on time. So I said, thank you, okay. And then I had to call Charlie and tell him, Charlie, you know what? You're crazy, the man, it almost worked if it had not been for, the, for that the helicopter that wasn't available. But I said, aren't uh, you playing with the Liberation Orchestra that night? And wouldn't you have a problem? This is a band that you reform each time the Republicans go into power. 
And now you would take a gift from an arms dealer because Bell Helicopter built, you know, military equipment to go and kill people abroad sometimes. And he said, no, because for once they would have been doing something good. <laughs> and I said, something good being something for Charlie, obviously. He says, yeah, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, yeah. But Charlie Eden was such a doll. In the other department, I mean, he was very creative, always coming back with new projects. So it was fascinating to work with him. But my God, every time that he come into town, it, it would be like, in the end, we had developed this very childish psychology of him being put in a room in the hotel so that we could upgrade him. Because if we put him in the nicer street, we had no place to go with him. So, so that's what we did with him. I would ask the intercontinental, put him next to the ventilation system in the third floor so that we can put him in a nicer room in the eighth floor. You know? Dave Brubeck was the one jazz great that was always, every year, invited. Uh, well, he had an open invitation. Yeah. So whenever he felt like coming, you, he had to tell us by you know, the month of February or March so that we could make sure that we gave him the right slot, the right concert hall for the project that he had. And he had so many of them. You know. uh, we did a symphony concert with him. We did his sacred music. and The octet. All, all, you did all. the only octet concert yes. in 40 years. Yeah. Even when he was 90, I think, and, and he had to be helped to the piano. All of that fall away. And... He'd be like a child hitting the keys for the first time and being delighted that a noise came out. And he, it, it was, it was even, after, even after his son Michael passed, he still came here to celebrate well, the 50th actually, anniversary of Time Out. His son passed away at 61, I think, just doing jogging in Central Park. He learned that, and he decided to stay in Montreal to do the concert. Yola went back to New York. And at the time, I had to bring him on stage, to walk him on stage, because he would, could not walk alone. And he did an encore with the solo piece, a new composition, and it was a funeral march. I bring it back after, and I said, that was for your son, and as soon as we passed the curtain, it took, you know, he cried on my, on my shoulder for about five minutes, holding that 90-year-old man, it was, I was crying too. You know that that song, Blue Rondo à la Turque, was the first piece of music that brought me to jazz. My parents had the album Time Out, and I was listening to, maybe I was 10, 11 years old, I was listening to that piece always. <laughs> Must have been an hyperactive kid. Uh, at 25 <laughs> years. that kind of I, music. <laughs> yeah, at 25 years I brought Brubeck in town for the first time, you know. For me, it was a song after. So I'd never heard jazz before, and I bought that record because somebody said, well, you want to hear jazz, play this record, time out. I bought it at the AMP grocery, you know, and, and I heard Blue Rock, and I don't know, wow. And then Strange Metal Art came on. And that changed my life. I'm, I'm here because that music changed oh, yeah. my life, that track, playing it over and over and over again. Tony Bennett, Many times, I've known him for years and, 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 and enjoyed him in concert everywhere. He never sang better than he sang in Montreal. He loved singing here. And, and the night of, uh, he got the Ella Fitzgerald Award. He always said, I love coming to Montreal because the festival treats all the artists wonderfully. That night, 
of the Ella Fitzgerald Award was the greatest concert I ever heard him sing. He was so excited, and there was something in his voice. And we were, Johnny Clegg was out in the street. It was going to, Jason Karansky, the new downbeat editor, and I were going to go out, hear like 20 minutes of Tony, and then go out in the street. But Tony was just, no, no Tony Bennett show is the same. Even he sings the same songs, they're never the same. And he was so good. And he kept on, and he kept on. And toward the end, it was the first time I ever heard even the slightest tiredness in his voice. And I'm thinking, how is he going to get to that climax of how do you keep the music playing at the end of every show? And we were literally at the edge of our seats, because we stayed for the whole thing. And we're like, wait, never, never, never. And he nailed it. And it was just, I mean, that was so, so wonderful, having him here again and again and again and again and again. And he just loved it because of you guys, the way you treated him and everybody, not just the superstars, but everybody. And you all are like that. And you know, you're just, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Those are some jazz stories that you do not get to hear every day. And we're so happy that we could share them with you. And thank you to Andre Minar and Alain Simar. It's the original co-founders of the Montreal International Jazz Festival with our own WBGO's Michael Bourne at our 40th anniversary celebration concert at L'Estral in 2019. And we have a full concert video of this event if you go to our website or checkoutjazz.org. And I'd like to give a special thanks to everyone that was a part of making that happen. And if you enjoyed this show, make sure that you go to our website to see all of our celebrations. We have many of them. Honoring Michael Bourne. Lots of red beer. I drink a lot of red beer when I'm up here. <laughs> here's, here, you know, here's the weird thing, is that I never feel like I'm coming back, or that I've gone. Coming to Montreal is like going to Newark to, to be on BGO. I mean, it's just like something I do every day, in effect, in my life. My presence at this festival, and the, and the presence of this festival and of this city in my life is an everyday thing of my life. It's just, I don't leave and come back. I'm always EC here. The Checkout is a production of WBGO Studios. I'm Simon Rentner. Thanks for checking us out, and Happy New Year.